All right, good morning, everybody. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount covers chapters 5 to 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. If um, you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the ones in the pew uh, in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 809. So I'm going to read the Beatitudes here again, and then we'll dive in. We're going to be looking just at verses 9 to 12 this morning, the last two, two to three, um, depending on how you count it. <laughs> but let's just catch the flow of the context here by reading all the Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the Sermon on the Mount um, and the Beatitudes in particular are totally countercultural. So the Beatitudes, which are basically like these declarations of almost like congratulations. If this is you, congratulations. God has poured out his favor, his blessing, his grace on you if these Beatitudes describe you. But if the world were to write its you know, description of the good life, its own list of Beatitudes, it would almost be the polar opposite, wouldn't it? It would sound something like this. Congratulations to the self-confident, for they will impress. Congratulations to the carefree, for they will be happy. Congratulations to the self-promoting, for they will gain a following. They'll turn heads. Congratulations to the pragmatic, those who don't worry about what's right, they just worry about what's going to work, for they will get ahead. Congratulations to those who prioritize themselves, for they won't get derailed by everybody else's needs. Congratulations to the broad-minded, for they will see with clarity. Congratulations to the aggressive, for they will get ahead. Or maybe you could flip it and say, congratulations to those who have achieved inner peace, for they are truly spiritual. And then congratulations to the popular, for theirs is the inner circle. 
So <clears throat> it's obviously Jesus' message. It's very countercultural. It's the opposite of so many of the values in the world around us that um, we kind of, it's the air that we breathe day in and day out. So um, Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher who was also an atheist, um, one of his books was titled The Antichrist. And in his autobiographical sketch, um, he had the audacity to apply that title to himself. He called himself an antichrist because he hated Christianity. And he denounced it in no uncertain terms. So he defined good in terms of power. He wrote this, All that heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. That's how he defined good. And he viewed Christianity and the Sermon on the Mount and the cross of Christ as weakness. So he asked the question, what is more harmful than any vice? And he replied, active sympathy for the ill-constituted and weak. Christianity. Nothing in our unhealthy modernity is more unhealthy than Christian pity. Compassion. So his understanding of the Christian view of God was one from which everything strong, this is to quote him, everything strong, brave, masterful, and proud was gutted. The only New Testament figure that he respected was Pontius Pilate. He says, I condemn Christianity. And he said, the Christian church has left nothing untouched by its depravity. It has made of every value a disvalue. And at the end of his book, he advised for a reevaluation of all values. Well, yeah, he's like the polar opposite. And maybe that's an exaggerated case, but even for garden variety, run of the mill, you know, values in this world, what Jesus says is countercultural and very much we need a reevaluation of our values. By the way, um, The Antichrist was written in 1888. A year before Nietzsche went mad. So poverty of spirit, mourning over our sin, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, being a peacemaker. These are not weakness. They require so much more strength than their opposites. So all this may seem, these beatitudes at times may seem you know, certainly to the world and its authorities, like it's upside down, but that shouldn't surprise us. God opposes the proud, but he wants to give grace to the humble. And the blessed path is the path of humility following Jesus, our humble Savior. So in Jesus' kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So if you want to be great, Jesus said, you must be a servant of all and slave of all. So we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' value system, his kingdom, is the opposite of what this world says. And you know what? Christians don't have to worry about being on the wrong side of history. All we need to do is get down low with Jesus. And when he comes to set everything to rights, we'll be with him. And we're going to be just fine. Blessed are these folks those in his kingdom. So we're going to look at the last two this week, verses 9 to 12. Um, there's a little outline in the bulletin if it's helpful for you. Three points. Blessed are... What are the three points? <laughs> How did I say it? Um, 
blessed sonship. It's an honor to suffer shame for the name. And then we're going we're gonna to think about persecuted peacemakers because that's kind of a weird thing to put side by side, right? It almost seems like those are opposites, but it's really important to see them side by side. So let's look at them one at a time and then we'll look at them together. All right? So first off, blessed sonship. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's first take this peacemaker part. Um, so being a peacemaker begins by being at peace with God. You must be at peace with God before you can truly be a peacemaker in the terms that Jesus gives here. So maybe you've heard the expression, you know, she is so comfortable in her skin. Maybe you're jealous of people that are comfortable in their skin. But there's an even more important question. Are you comfortable in your soul skin? Like, are you comfortable before God? Can you be quiet with your own thoughts? Can you be honest with yourself and with God about who you are? Are you at peace with God? If we have a guilty conscience, if we don't think God loves us and we're just trying to scramble to, you know, be good enough and be worthy, we're always going to be insecure. We're not going to know who we are. And sometimes we're afraid to face who we are. We're afraid for the light to shine in the nooks and crannies of our life. I mean, have you stopped long enough in the light of God to be exposed and to see your desperate need? We're all bankrupt in spirit. But if you see that you're poor in spirit, <laughs> congratulations. Blessed are you. You are starting to see things in line with reality that you and I, we're totally needy. We can't help. We can't save ourselves. We can't even help ourselves. We can't atone for our sins can't earn our way to heaven. We can't merit God's favor. But blessed are the poor in spirit because they recognize their poverty and they recognize the riches of God's mercy in Christ. So we can be at peace with God. Even if you came in this morning not at peace with God, you can leave at peace with God recognizing your need and calling out to him to save you and make you his own, to reconcile and make peace. That's what Jesus died for. So before you hear this beatitude about being a peacemaker, we all need to hear about the peacemaker and the gospel of peace. Oswald Chambers wrote this. He said, Beware of placing our Lord's role as teacher ahead of his purpose as Savior. That tendency is prevalent today, and it's dangerous. It was in his day, it is in our day. We must know Jesus first as Savior before his teaching can have any meaning for us, before it can have any meaning other than that of an ideal which leads to despair. I mean, if we've got to, if we've got to do this on our own steam, we're all going to fail. But if by being born again from above we know him first as Savior, him 
making peace with us through the blood of the cross, we know that he did not come only to teach us. He came to make us what he teaches us we should be. So, it's good news. This beatitude is not about how you become a son. This beatitude is a description about, of what happens once you are a son of God. Okay? Beatitudes are not entrance requirements. They are a description of the ethics of the kingdom. So we come into this kingdom, we come into this peace relationship, this reconciled, peaceful relationship with God through Jesus, simply as a gift of his grace. He came to rescue us. We can't climb a ladder to him. So we've got to be at peace with God before we're ever going to be a peacemaker with others. So if you are a peacemaker, if you have a desire, if you love harmony and unity, you want to work for peace and love and understanding and great. Like in this church, you want this like gracious vibe because you know how gracious and merciful and patient and compassionate God has been with you. You want that to, to kind of characterize our relationships in here, of course we're going to sin. Of course we're going to say stupid things and we're going to just be gracious with one another. Blessed are you. Congratulations. God has poured out his favor on you. Where did that come from? You must be a son of God. He's had mercy on you. He set you at peace with himself. And now his peacemaking character is being worked out through your life. You want others to find peace with God through Jesus that don't know him yet. And where there is alienation or strife or conflict or enmity or division, you want to work for reconciliation and peace and unity and harmony inside the church, outside the church. Now, let's look at the reason for this blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they shall be called sons of God. Why is this such a great blessing? What is Jesus getting at here? And why don't the translator translate sons as children? Isn't that kind of like... Just dealing with the men? Is this some carryover from male-centric patriarchy? No. It's actually really important that it's translated as sons. Okay? F look ahead at the end of chapter 5. Matthew 5.43. We see it again. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then a little clue here. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So in the ancient world, to be a son of something was to embody the work or the character of that person. To share the character of that person. So first off, I mean, you can see how it started in pre-industrial society. Sons did for a living what the fathers did. So if your son, if your dad was a baker, you're a baker. Baker, son. If your father was a carpenter, you were going to be a carpenter. And so that, that phenomenon shaped the way people were named and nicknamed. So do you know there's a really well-known guy in the early church named Joseph that you don't know as Joseph because he always went by the name Barnabas. But that was a nickname. 
You can look at it later, Acts 4, 36. Why did he get the nickname Barnabas? Because Bar, son of, Nabus, means son of encouragement. He was an encourager. And so they changed his name. <laughs> He's just such an encourager. Like, dude, you are so, I'm going to call you Barnabas. <laughs> we maybe need some name changing to happen around here. That would be a good thing. Judas, on the other hand, was called a son of perdition. Ugh. Like, hopefully none of us gets that nickname. The point is, he's an offspring of hell. So the anti-beatitude here would be, cursed are those who sow discord, but they shall be called sons of Satan. That's what he does. You don't want to be called a son of the devil, like father, like son. I mean, someone has said, it is Satan who kindles the flames of contention in men's hearts and then stands and warms himself at the fire. So here, in this sense, women can be sons. Just like in 1 Thessalonians, Paul likens himself to a nursing mother in his relationship to the church there. So again, just see the, the point of this. It would be bad then to translate this as they shall be called children of God because it would miss the meaning. Children of God focuses on the familial relationship between God the Father and us, his beloved children. And that's a sweet truth, and that's all over the Bible, and we love that. But Son of God focuses more on the character of the person and that character being worked out functionally. So, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You see peacemaking in somebody? You must be, you must be God's son, because he's the great peacemaker. So what kind of peace does God make? Well, he makes vertical peace first, and then horizontal peace second. Let's think about that, just the way God has made peace. We've got to see what a great peacemaker he is. He made us and everything perfect, good, 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 very good created us in his image for this perfectly peaceful, wonderful, intimate relationship with him and with one another, but then entered the disturber of the peace. The peace breaker slithered in. And Adam and Eve bought the lie, and they became traitors, and they sided with the peace breaker. So there was vertical alienation. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. There was spiritual deadness that came in as a result. Sin separates. It breaks fellowship and unity. And then there was horizontal strife, right? Adam and Eve, you know, they're naked and unashamed prior to that, and now they're very aware of their sin, and it drives a wedge. And then Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. So the Lord said to the serpent, Genesis 3, 14 and 15, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity. I'm not going to make a truce with this kind of rebellion. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God, the great peacemaker, pursues his people in the garden 
covers their guilt and shame. Sacrifices an animal. The fig leaves weren't doing it so well. He gave them animal covering. Just early foreshadowing of the gospel. Bloodshed to cover their shame. And he gives them a promise that one day someone's going to come and crush the head of the peace breaker. The Prince of Peace is going to come and reconcile to us, reconcile God to us and us one to another. So a few verses here, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Or Colossians 1.20. He made peace by the blood of the cross. Or Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, it's a gift of grace, accessed by faith, the empty hands of faith receiving that gift. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the essence of God's peacemaking, and it shapes our peacemaking if we are peacemaking in his image as his sons. We're people who bring the gospel of peace to a world that is hostile to God and needs to be reconciled to him. But it's not limited to just out there. It's also a gospel blood-bought peace that we sow in here in our relationships. And when I say in here, you know I don't mean just in the walls, right? I'm talking about relationships in your community group, you know, when you're having coffee, you know, having people over, all of that. So the gospel accomplishes vertical peace with God for those who trust the Prince of Peace and welcome the gospel of peace, and it accomplishes horizontal peace. But that peace doesn't happen automatically. And there are constant threats to that peace. That's why we must be on guard. We actually, as the people of God, are called to be guardians of the peace. Okay? Listen to a few verses here. Hebrews 12, 14, 15. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up. We might need to do some gardening, some weed pulling this morning. It's a good place to do that. You came to the right place. If there's some roots of bitterness growing up, God can help you pull those things out by the roots that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So we've got to be defenders and guardians of the peace. Jesus died to purchase it. It's so precious to him. It should be precious to us. We can't take it lightly. It is so easy and cheap to be an armchair critic in the church. Of course there's problems. Of course there's sins. Like, hello, doesn't take a rocket scientist. The church doesn't need more armchair critics. We've got to get on the field, get our hands dirty in order to make peace, cultivate an environment where the grace and mercy and patience and forgiveness and love of God is shaping this culture, these relationships. And when that is on your heart to do and you are trying, however, imperfectly like all of us. Congratulations. If you've got a heart for that, congratulations. Blessed are you. God has been so kind to you. And there's this like 
knee-jerk response to how he's dealt with you in the way that you're relating to your brothers and sisters and trying to work for that peace in this context. And even with other churches, like One for Wilmington is a way that we do this. By the way, we're going to do Good Friday again this, this year with the other churches. It's a sweet way to show our city that, you know what? The church isn't as divided as everybody always says it is, and certainly in places it is. But here it doesn't have to be. We can come together as one because of how God has dealt with us. It shapes the way we deal with one another. So Ephesians 4 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is job description for every single one of us that calls this our church home. Defender and guardian of the peace. Now, this is the positive side of peacemaking, even though some of it can be convicting and hard, sobering. There's also an inevitable negative result of being a peacemaker like God because we're often actually called, I mean, this happens inevitably, to interrupt or disrupt false peace for the sake of true peace. The goal is not peace at any cost. We can't sacrifice truth on the altar of peace. There is such a thing as false peace. So we must be willing to pay all manner of personal cost in order to make true peace, but we must never put our commitment to truth up for sale, no matter how high the bidder is willing to go, as it were. Like, we just can't ever sell the truth and cave in the interest of peace, false peace. So, for instance, with the exclusivity of Christ, there is only one way. There's Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's not a popular message, but that's actually the gospel of peace. That's the only way anyone's going to find peace with God is through Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. But you know what? If you actually go public with that in your spheres of influence and relationships, it's probably going to disturb the peace in certain instances. And you cannot, out of fear of that, cave and shrink back and just remain silent. Same thing with the sexual revolution. There's going to be a lot of pressure to cave to keep the peace so listen to what Jesus says just a little later on in the Gospel of Matthew. You might want to turn there. Matthew 10. Verse 32. This is sobering stuff here, but again, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, not ashamed, not shrinking back, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is not Jesus speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He really did come to make peace. But that peace can never be found by being ashamed of him and putting him second, third, fourth down the list. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that blessed are the peacemakers is followed by blessed are the persecuted because righteousness can never be subordinated to a peace-at-all-cost sort of perspective. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's not just kind of a peaceful disposition. It's active work. We're guardians of the peace in our church and agents, ambassadors of peace everywhere, friendships and marriages and families and places of work. This is, this is for all of us, by the way, even kids, like all you kids that are here, blessed, hear the word of Jesus. This is good news to you. It's hard to be at peace with your siblings and with your parents, but blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, kids, I would encourage you to ask Jesus for grace to be a peacemaker in your home and in your school. So, one kind of practical help that I've found um, just as a way to apply some of this uh, before we move on to the persecuted one. Um, did it work to put that slide up? Oh, no. Where's the... Oh, this is terrible. I had a laser pointer from Seth, and I can't find it. It's probably on my desk. Somebody want to go find it? <laughs> no. There you go. Bill. Oh, Bill's got a key. Okay. So try not to be thrown off by the amazing artistic design. I want you to focus on the content, okay? I'm sorry that it's so flashy. Um, wow, and you can't really see it that well. All right, so the laser pointer is not here, but there's a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, and his wife actually wrote like a great version for kids. Um, and I would encourage you to check them out just for copyright reasons. I just did this and kind of tweaked it and whatever. Yes? All right. Okay, good. Thank you, Bill. Um, so this is called the slippery slope. So this is just really helpful to keep in your head. It might be helpful as you seek to make peace, okay? So right about there, it gets slippery, doesn't it? Like the speed picks up, and you can end up down here pretty quick. Same thing over here. Boom. So peacemaking is what we're after. This is real peace. It's loving engagement. It's after reconciliation, log and spec, repentance, forgiveness, like healthy discussion. When you need to work to make peace, sometimes you need to confront. Sometimes you need to hold accountable. Be careful. It's easy to go into judgmentalism and attack, to condemn and slander and bully and even abuse. That's peace breaking when you slide over here, the slippery slope. 
So this is focus. If you, if you end up down here, you're focusing on the other person pointing the finger, and there is no peace over here. Fight and flight, this is the fight part. Over here, when you believe the gospel, of course, love covers a multitude of sins. It's a glory to overlook an offense, so overlooking is important if you're after real peace. Marriage, friendship, in the church, community group, forbearance, patience, kindness, but be careful. It can turn into denial and avoidance. You can enable people. You can just appease them. Blame shift, and you are fleeing. You're focused on yourself. Comfort, avoid conflict at all costs. This is fake peace. Peace faking, false peace, cheap peace. We want to stay up here. We need the grace of God to stay up there, right? So it's just helpful to see how we can fall into the ditch on this side, how we can fall into the ditch on that side. And we want, by grace, oh Lord, help us stay here. Blessed are you if you want to stay on top there and not slide down to the left or the right. All right. Now, we can and should do all that we can to make peace, but we all realize, right, that we can't do it all Sometimes peace is just not possible. So thankfully God recognizes that and he says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Okay? And sometimes precisely because we'll be seeking to make real peace, not fake peace or, or you know, disturb, break the peace, we are going to upset people. We're going to be disturbers of that false peace. And it's in that case that we need to remember that it's an honor to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Look at verses 10 to 12 here now. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, um, this is persecution, whether insult or slander or being marginalized or mocked or scoffed at or whatever, ostracized, for the sake of righteousness. Or in verse 11, it's on my account for standing with Jesus, following Jesus, right? So this is not persecution because you're a jerk, Jesus doesn't say, blessed, you're, you know. No, it's because of following Jesus. It's because of righteousness, not, you know, this kind of self-righteous, holier-than-thou sort of Christianity. No. When we follow Jesus, we are actually promised something. We are promised in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even peacemakers who are poor in spirit and meek will be persecuted. Okay, so Kevin DeYoung wrote this. I think this is helpful. He says, I don't really cherish the promise of 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a God life Christ Jesus will be persecuted. On the one hand, I don't want it to happen. That seems bad. On the other hand, if it doesn't happen, I wonder if I'm bad. 
The verse is sobering. Indeed, all who live, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is one of those Bible promises that doesn't make it into the flower-covered book for graduates. Maybe it should, without the flowers. Granted, there is a danger that some Christians do all they can to invite persecution. They refuse to accommodate ever. They live to find hills to die on. They lead with their chins. They wear every bit of opposition as a badge of honor. The world hates them, and they love it. But for most Christians, there's another danger, the danger of thinking that if we clean up our image, smooth out the edges of our faith, change a few songs, do a few good deeds, then we can get people to think well of us. Sometimes we act like God has promised that if we do the right thing with the right heart and say things with the right attitude, then the world will stop choking on the church. But God makes no such promise. What he does promise is that if, we, if our singular aim is to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, if our goal every morning is to follow Jesus, if our first priority is to walk in God's way and believe his word, we will be persecuted. We act like persecution is the one thing God would never require of the sincere Christian when actually it's one of the sure things he promises. Out of fear of persecution, and it's my fear too, our refusal to even consider it an option can prevent us from being obedient in a whole host of areas. Maybe it's sharing your faith or letting on at work that you're a Christian. Maybe you're hesitating to become a Christian for fear of family and friends. Maybe you're hesitant about homosexuality or caving on creation because you don't want to be ridiculed. Maybe living a godly life in Christ Jesus will mean getting passed over for a promotion. Maybe it means being overlooked, underappreciated, and misunderstood. 2 Timothy 3 is a scary verse because it's a divine guarantee. It will happen. And considering whom the guarantee is for, the second half of the verse is even scarier if it doesn't happen. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Jesus actually underlines this with kind of a corollary warning to this beatitude in Luke 6, 26. He says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So this one's pretty sobering. I think we all agree, maybe. Most of us probably agree that all the other beatitudes are normal for the Christian life. You know, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking. Why do we see this last one as optional or, or surprising or unexpected if it actually happens? Or why do we avoid it at all costs? So let's look now at the latter half of this beatitude. Theirs is the kingdom. Okay, up at the top, you see the bookends? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. So what, what's the connection there? We can see poor in spirit, you got nothing. God saves you, you've got everything. We see that. What, why is it that blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom, isn't it an issue of allegiance? So those who are willing to endure persecution are willing because their leader is worth following, regardless of the consequences. They're not ashamed to stand with him and be shamed 
because they're with Jesus no matter what. That's why Jesus says, blessed, fortunate are you. You've been favored and graced by God. Those of you who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So if you're living righteously, if you're faithfully following your king, you are going to be persecuted. But listen, blessed are you. You would not be able to follow him in the face of that unless you'd been given much grace. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom. Congratulations. But I think Jesus knows that we're going to need some help to really swallow this one whole. And so he goes on to give two more reasons why we should view this as blessing, the good life, the blessed life. He gives this exhortation, rejoice and be glad. Isn't that crazy? Like, what? Rejoice and be glad? Some kind of masochist, like we just love pain or something? No, rejoice and be glad first because your reward in heaven is great. It's worth it. Whatever loss you might experience because of following Jesus is worth it. It's nothing in comparison to the gain of knowing Christ and having him forever. Yours is the kingdom now and forever. Secondly, rejoice and be glad because this, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're not alone. This is not a strange thing. You're not just kind of out, you know, isolated. Like, what's wrong with me? You are one more in a long line of faithful witnesses who have suffered for their faith. So one example in Acts 5, apostles um, persecuted by the religious leaders and then beaten, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They actually heard Jesus' words and believed them and lived them out. So if you have suffered for the gospel, if you are suffering for the gospel, for standing for Jesus, you need to be reminded that the kingdom is yours. Like, blessed are you. Congratulations. No matter what you may lose in this life for following Jesus, it all serves to remind you and even increase your anticipation of the true and lasting inheritance that's yours and nobody can take it away from you. So Sam Storms writes this. He says, how did Jesus's how did Jesus expect his disciples to react under persecution? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever would, nor to sulk like a child, nor to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, nor just grin and bear it like a stoic, still less to pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. When, okay, so that's helpful. So when, when we're persecuted or slandered or marginalized or mocked or dismissed or made fun of or passed over or whatever, Congratulations! What if we actually had that perspective? We would not be pursuing peace at all costs. We wouldn't fear and always be silent and cave and shrink back. You're not cursed when enemies of righteousness curse you. You're blessed. You're not under a curse. You're under a blessing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world can condemn us, but they can't condemn us. If God has justified you, who can condemn? Nobody. So now is the time for us to hear and believe this so that we're ready 
when the persecution or the threat of persecution comes in whatever form, sooner or later in our lifetime, because Jesus' disciples will be persecuted peacemakers. Okay, so now just for a minute here, look at these two words together, these two descriptions together. It's helpful to see them together. We certainly don't relish persecution. We're not trying to pick a fight in some kind of, you know, spiritual puff your chest out sort of way. And we certainly should never be persecuted because of our stupid personality or sinful attitude. If that's why we're persecuted, we're not blessed. Okay, don't congratulate or comfort yourself if you're being persecuted because you're living opposite of all the other Beatitudes. I mean, listen what Jesus' followers are like. Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. 1 Peter 3.15, Tyler read it. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So that's true. Peaceful people. But it's also true that peacemakers should expect that they will be persecuted. And if we're always just so nice and kind and never want to rock the boat... We need to be careful if that's your inclination. If we so fear persecution, we tend to make peace at all costs, you know, our goal, and we compromise. We hide our light under a basket to keep the peace and not draw out any opposition. But we're not going to be able to love anybody if we're afraid to be salt and light. So if you're tempted to be silent or cave or out of fear of insult or reprisal or whatever, maybe we need to hear that reminder, or maybe need to be reminded by that word in Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So here's the Beatitudes. Jesus comes on the scene. The king is here. He's bringing the gospel of the kingdom, and he says, repent. 417 sets up the Beatitudes. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is planning to change us. He's not going to leave us the same. And you know what? Even if we're real, if we're really disciples of Jesus, we certainly need to become better peacemakers. And he wants to change us and give us grace for that. And if we have been ashamed and caved, okay, he knows that. He wants to strengthen our spiritual backbone so that we're ready and not going to shrink back the next time. And he wants to give grace this morning. So, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted peacemakers. And let me just close with one example, and then we'll, we'll enjoy the table here together. So you remember Matthew 5. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you see how that brings peacemaking and persecution together? so that you may be sons of your Father and who is in heaven. I read this story a while back, and I, it's just so encouraging and convicting and helpful. And if it's true for them, how much more so for our kind of smaller type situations. So in a certain poor village in the mountainous country of Nepal, there are 43 Christians. Hindus in the village were angry at the growth of the church, angry that villagers were turning their back on the thousands of Hindu gods and goddesses and following the one true God. 
Therefore, Hindus cut off the water supply to the Christians' homes. Persecution. Voice of the Martyrs purchased water tanks to provide the Christian homes with fresh water. However, instead of hoarding the water, the Christians used it as a ministry opportunity. Blessed are the peacemakers. They have set up a water faucet close to the homes of nearby Hindus, allowing them to access the water before it flows down for their use. Blessed are the persecuted peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Theirs is the kingdom. They're not alone. They're in a long line of faithful witnesses. And their reward is very great. Let's pray. As the men come forward, prepare our hearts for participating in the table. Lord, you know how you want to deal with each one of us here this morning. Maybe we need to repent of fighting against making peace or fleeing from the cost of making peace and refusing it either way. You know those here that are not yet at peace with you, and I pray that you would melt their heart and win their heart right now. And I pray that they would cry out to you to be set right and reconciled to you. We may need to repent of wanting peace at all costs and fearing losing relationships or respect or whatever else if we actually follow you faithfully and, and speak up at appropriate times. Lord, I pray that you would convict us by your spirit, that you would be moving among us and that we would welcome that and not stiff arm it. But I also pray that you would deeply assure and touch each heart, giving us confidence that there is grace for every one of our failures and every one of our fears. And I pray that you would mediate that grace to us richly as we feed on your grace at the table now. Remind us of how you dealt with us when we were yet enemies. And enable us to be conduits of that peacemaking and truth and grace to those around us. For the glory of your name and the good of our neighbors. In Jesus' name. Amen.